HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit firesider.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I am your host, Erin Fairbanks, and today we are going to be talking about the most widely used flavor in the world, vanilla. Um, Lots to learn. Definitely a topic that could cover a whole season of shows. Um, so we're going we're gonna to hopefully hit on some of the high points. We are joined by Matt Nielsen. He is the Chief, Chief Operating Officer. Well, that was our one for me. Chief <laughs> Operating Officer of uh, Nielsen Macy. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks. You, you don't have to worry about the title. As a family business, we're, you know, we're not very big on titles. But corporate-wise, you obviously have to have them. But the I, don't, C- I try not to identify by that. <laughs> You're like the COO. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so... Third generation? I am third generation along with my brother and sister. We now own and manage the company together, uh, and we're really proud to be able to carry on that legacy. So the company was actually started in 1907, um, making aromas for cleaning chemicals, yeah, is that right? Yeah, we kind of started on the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, Richard Massey founded the company in 1907 and uh, as an aroma company, so producing aromas to cover up kind of the obnoxious smells that were coming out of cleaning products back in those early days. Um, and it was after my grandfather joined the business around 1917 and became a partner in the 20s that they switched over to do more food flavorings. So since about the 20s, we've been focused only on food flavorings and kind of quickly left that aroma industry behind. I feel like uh, more more delicious anyway, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. I think it's a more, for me, it's a more interesting, more fun industry to be in, definitely. And you started, what, sweeping floors and stuff when you were in, like, your teens, When I was 15, I started working on the factory floor, sweeping floors, cleaning tanks, doing the things that I didn't really want to be doing back then. I kind of felt like, uh, you know, being being the, the child of the owner that maybe I should have, like, a corner office already. Um, <laughs> but that obviously is very unrealistic, and uh, as as most teenagers have in their, in their heads, but... Uh, 
uh, it was a great experience for me, um, particularly being in charge of operations. I know everything that needs to happen on that production floor. I've done it all. I worked my way up from sweeping floors to you know grinding the vanilla beans to bottling product and shipping orders, and um, so I know our whole process. And it, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take back any of that experience whatsoever. Does it just smell so good in there? Does that's it actually what, smell like vanilla? That's what people say. I'm yeah. pretty immune to it. Really? I mean, if I've been gone for maybe two weeks, which would be a long time, and I come back, I might smell it. But otherwise, I'm pretty immune to it. But <laughs> visitors that come in, and in the business park that we are, people will um, walk you know, outside during the warmer days, and they say that they love coming by our factory because it just <laughs> smells like cookies yeah, just yeah, because yeah. of the vanilla aroma. Yeah. So yeah, people definitely can smell it. <laughs> um, so... I want to talk a little bit, I guess, about what vanilla is. I think one of the things that uh, there's like agriculture products that you really think about, like when you're at the farmer's market and you pick up a tomato and some potatoes and maybe you buy a roasted chicken. Um, But I don't think vanilla is like really at the top of the list when you're thinking about things kind of growing because I think it's a a victim of its own success. It's so ubiquitous. It's in so many different things. But maybe we can start with a little bit of a primer of like, what is vanilla? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely, it's one of those products that people don't really think about. Um, You know, you you just kind of take it for granted. Um, But it's in so many things, as you said. And what people don't realize is that vanilla itself is actually the fruit of an orchid. Uh, It's the only orchid that's grown worldwide that's known to bear an edible fruit. There are certainly other orchids that produce fruit, but they're not known to be edible. Um, And the other thing that's really unique about it is that it has to be um, manually pollinated. There's a membrane in the orchid that prevents it from self-pollinating. So you have to manually pollinate that orchid. And the orchid itself actually opens up one day a year. Uh, it only blooms one day a year, and you have to pollinate it on that day. Otherwise, you're not going to get a vanilla bean from that orchid. So there's a lot of little nuances to it that people don't think about, the fact that it's from an orchid, that it's grown in tropical areas, and that it has to be hand-pollinated. Um, it's, a, it's a huge part of why the process is so long and why vanilla is so expensive, the second most expensive spice after saffron. How did someone figure out the hand pollination? Like, do you know? I mean, how did well, someone yeah, was just it was, like... So vanilla originated in Mexico and uh, was taken from Mexico during the colonial days to other parts of the world, um, principally Madagascar and the Indonesian islands and some of those places. And it was uh, while the... So in Mexico, it, it was pollinated typically by a bee that would be attracted to the orchid, and it would go in and, and doing so, break that membrane and pollinate the, the orchid itself. That obviously commercially, you can't rely on that if you're right. going to grow vanilla as a harvest. Um, so when they did take it to other parts of the world, the vines flourished and they would get orchids, but they never got fruit mm-hmm. because they didn't have this bee that was native to Mexico. So they had to figure out a way. And it was actually a, a Belgian botanist that determined and discovered that there was this membrane and that the only way to pollinate it is to break the membrane and do that. Um, and then there was a um, actually a former slave, Edmund Albius, uh, in Madagascar who discovered and devised the method for basically making a bamboo toothpick and going into the orchid, breaking that membrane and pollinating the orchid together. Uh, and that was in the, uh, I want to say, the early 1800s that that, uh, that that happened and was discovered. And then it started to flourish, particularly in Madagascar, by far. 
So if I'm standing like next to a vanilla plant, what does it what does it look like? Is it coming up to like my waist? Is it you know I'm five seven, you know? So, like... <laughs> so it's uh, the orchids grow on vines. Mm-hmm. Um, so the vines themselves will grow. If you leave them in the wild, they'll grow to seventy to a hundred feet. Wow. Um, they typically will grow um, naturally. They'll grow on bases of trees, so they need a support system. So they can grow up into the trees when they do it commercially. Uh, as the growers handle them, they will keep them, uh, they'll, nap, they'll prune them to keep them more manageable, mm-hmm. as well as keep them within, you know, six, eight feet from the ground. So they'll continually loop them up and down around the tree. Um, and that just is to make it, you know, physically possible to have it within Harvest reach and, and, yeah, and yeah. to be able to pollinate the orchids. And what is like the life cycle? Like, if I pl- am I planting a vanilla, if I like plant a vanilla seed, does it do I just sit and wait? <laughs> well, like- the way that they propagate vines is they they will take a cutting of an existing vine, um, usually about. I don't know, 50 to 60, 70 centimeters long. And you actually just put that in the ground and that will then start to grow in itself. It is about three to four years of growth of the vine before you can consider harvesting vanilla beans or pollinating the orchids to, to get the vanilla beans from them. And then once it actually is ready to, um, to be pollinated and everything, it's another maybe eight years that you can actually harvest vanilla beans from it before that vine has to be replaced. Um, That's one way that, particularly in Madagascar, they control the quality of what they do. If you use older vines, then it's weaker, and that impacts the quality of the fruit that it can bear. Okay, so like... Younger vines are stronger, yes. more more like stronger. Exactly. Than the, so I know one of the things in the vanilla conversation, people have strong feelings about, um, you know, is it Madagascar vanilla, Mexican vanilla, Tahitian vanilla, the the flavor characteristics of vanillas from different parts of the world are a result of what? Well, there's there's two things. So we'll take a step back. There's two main geniuses that produce vanilla orchids. There's uh, vanilla planifolia andrews, which is what's native to Mexico and is grown in Madagascar, Uganda, India, Indonesia, um, and a little bit in Papua New Guinea. And then there's vanilla tahitensis more, which is native to French Polynesia, the Tahitian vanilla. Um, And that's grown obviously there in French Polynesia, as well as some in Papua New Guinea and a little bit in the Philippines. So those, that's where it starts is the genus of the orchid itself. But then ultimately it's really about the environment and the soil and the, you know, the terroir, as people would say, of where that vine and where that bean comes from that impacts the finished flavor profile. The cure techniques will also play a little bit of a role in that flavor profile, but it's really just about the environment. So if you think about Tahiti, very tropical, Mm -hmm. so you think about the types of fruits that are grown there and the flowers that are grown there. So Tahitian vanilla is naturally very fruity and very floral compared to the Madagascar variety, which is the vanilla planifoy Andrews, is much more um, creamier, deeper in flavor than, than a Tahitian variety. But they will all even the ones that come from that same orchid from Mexico, Madagascar, India, whichever, they all will have slight flavor profile differences just based on the environments that they're grown in. So I'm familiar with obviously like the, you know, long black dried vanilla bean that I get when I'm like feeling fancy and buying like 
whole vanilla beans. What does it look like when you pull it off the plant? Because I guess that's I guess I'm looking at like a dried black thing because of the curing process. Exactly. So. Yeah. The beans that we see that consumers see in the stores <laughs> are strictly cured vanilla beans. So when they're harvested, they're actually harvested as green beans. They look like, you know, long six to ten inch long green beans um, and that's when they're harvested and it's actually during the curing process that it starts to develop the flavor profile that we consider vanilla as a green bean if you smelled it looked at it you wouldn't know that it was vanilla whatsoever can you eat it like that as a green bean yeah um i'm sure you could but i don't think it'd be very appetizing yeah <laughs> um and and like in is vanilla like uh, i feel like many coffee or chocolate producing regions now like the 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 people who are producing those um, items aren't actually consuming them. Is that true? Like the same for vanilla? Is like vanilla used where it's grown? Yeah, in- they do use vanilla where it's grown. I mean, that's that's one of the key things about vanilla is it's not just about making things taste like vanilla. Mm-hmm. Vanilla is a flavor enhancer, so it does so much more in products. So you'll see vanilla in restaurants in Madagascar and Tahiti and things like that. They'll use it certainly to make ice cream, but they'll use it in sauces for shellfish or, um, you know, for things like lobster or crab or whatever it may be, or shrimp. You can also use it, you know, for salmon and things like that. So whatever fishes are, you know, natural to those areas, there's lots of different sauces that you can make that are more savory oriented, but to complement the, uh, you know, that type of product. So you guys, I mean, your facility is located in Waukegan, is yep, that right? That's Waukegan, right. Illinois, yep. and then you have another facility in Leeuwarden, Leeuwarden in the <laughs> Netherlands. Correct. So um, I'm guessing the Waukegan facility is by virtue of your like the history of the organization. Like this is where we were, so we have it. I know you've moved a little bit, but like. The Netherlands, is that a newer facility? And, like, why the Netherlands? Yeah, it's Netherlands is, new, well, newer in quotes. It's mm-hmm. now 21 years old. Um, we opened there in 1995. So the Chicago area has always been our home by far, and that's where Waukegan is. Um, and that's, you know, our biggest factory, per se, um, and where we produce the bulk of our products. But the Netherlands facility, we opened in 95, and we did that because we were exporting so much to Europe at the time, um, and vanilla extract contains alcohol. So back in those days in particular, they didn't really know how to classify it, so it would be taxed higher because of the alcohol content. Sure, yeah. And as well as shipping is really expensive to do that. So we decided that we had enough of a customer base that we really needed to be located in Europe to fulfill our existing customers, but also to grow the business, to be a European business as opposed to an American company trying to sell into Europe um, and that's why that's where it came about and and for us we chose the Netherlands for a couple reasons one um, the area that we're in is a very large dairy area mm-hmm. um, very similar to Wisconsin so uh-huh. you know we're, we're pretty close to Wisconsin being in Chicago so we were comfortable with that um, but mostly what we what we realized and what we understood is the employees that we were going to be hiring um, to produce vanilla they weren't going to know how to make vanilla we were going to have to teach them that obviously but they knew food production from a dairy background and right. they knew cleaning and sanitation yeah. which is really important to us um, so that was a really great skill set to have coming in huh. um, as well as the Netherlands is is relatively pro American, um, and uh, and they did a lot uh, economically to make it uh, viable for us and to give us the incentives to come there as well. Um, and we've loved it. We've stayed in the city that we've been in. Uh, we love the city. We love the the people. Our employees are great. Uh, our team over there is fully Dutch. We don't have any of us aren't aren't, you know positioned over there stationed Mm -hmm. over there um, because we have such a great team over there and uh, they can run it independently and we love that 
So I guess like my, my point in kind of pointing that out is like one, you are an international operation. So my guess is you're buying a fair amount of vanilla. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about like how the vanilla, I'm, I'm guessing the vanilla markets work. Like when you're deciding to buy, like what is the volume that you buy in? How are kind of prices set? And, and how do you ensure kind of sustainability of the um, industry when you're thinking about, you know, the farmers and the producers on that end and then, you know, moving on to the consumer side of things. And it's like eight questions in one. Yeah, that's so a big like, question. So, like, <laughs> so like, I, 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 I guess I'm just not exactly sure, like, where it makes sense to kind of jump in first. Sure. You know? um, well, I will try and address that. If I miss something, just ask I'll, me. I will remind um, you. <laughs> so it's, it's important to understand that um, the cultivation of vanilla is a very long process. So I'm going to use Madagascar as the example because they produce 80% of the world's supply. So they really control the market. And what happens in Madagascar impacts everywhere else in the world. Um, so typically what happens, the cycle for growing vanilla, for the cultivation of it, is as I mentioned, the orchids open one day a year. Luckily, not all on the same day. Yeah, that was. Yeah. I did want it's, to ask you about that. A, it's usually between a thirty to forty-five day time period. So that's usually, you know, somewhere beginning of October into November that they will blossom, and they'll get pollinated. They will then stay on the vine for nine months. They'll grow on the vine for nine months. They will be harvested then the next year, June or July, um, and then they will go through another three to six months of curing time. So. For the product that the material that we're buying now in 2016 was pollinated the fall of 2014, harvested our summer of 2015, and then began exporting December of 2015, January 2016. So it's about a, you know, 12 to 14 month time period cycle for that. Right. Um, typically what happens is we know from our history how much, you know, we need to buy. Mm -hmm. um, and we specifically, um, for the most part, work with importers that are based in North America or Europe for that facility. Um, and we do that for a couple reasons. One, the vanilla cultivation is thousands of family farms. So for us to buy directly from a farm um, is really hard to manage, um, to manage that many farmers for the quantities that we buy. We're certainly one of the larger buyers in the world for vanilla. But the important thing for us isn't necessarily that as much as it is a level of quality control. <coughs> so we work with the importers and you know, typically people overall will say Madagascar is the highest quality vanilla, the most, uh, you know, the, the typical flavor profile. But there are grades that come out of Madagascar that we won't buy. And when they export, they export everything relatively mixed together. So it's not very good at being separated by different grades or by different types. Huh. So our importers will bring the material into North America. They'll go through and sort and segregate what meets our specification. And that's what they then send to us. And everything else that's left over, which we think is kind of an inferior product, is what they're selling to our competitors then. So these are people that are these are people that are you know based like in sorting. and yeah, yeah and, and their business is vanilla and, and importing vanilla. Is there um, is there any culture of like you know like in chocolate? There's been a very big boom in the last you know decade, fifteen years of you know single origin chocolates. Is that a thing that's happening in the vanilla space or not really? Well, it has been for us um, ever since we, particularly ever since we got into the retail market, which was around 1983, mm -hmm. uh, when we first, uh, introduced a retail product before that all of our sales were to industrial users. So 
ice cream companies, bakeries, confectionaries, that kind of thing. So when we introduced our retail product, we did it by single origin. So we labeled that it was a Madagascar vanilla extract, that it was a Mexican vanilla extract or a Tahitian vanilla extract. So we were really the first ones that we know of in the retail marketplace that did that. Most of the time, particularly if you go to a supermarket, it's just labeled vanilla Vanilla. extract. You don't know where it comes from. Now people are starting to do that much more. Um, so single origin is much more important now, and particularly as, as people have gotten educated over the last you know 30-some-odd years about the fact that there are different flavor profiles. So right. even to our industrial users, we tell them you know where, it, where it's grown, that it's a Madagascar vanilla, or maybe it's a blend of a Madagascar and Indonesian vanilla, something like that um, because of a product application. So they know where it's coming from, and they also know that the flavor profile is unique because of that. So we can't just as very easily you know, change it and do a, you know, a Mexican and Indonesian or a Mexican and Tahitian blend, because that would completely change the flavor profile in their finished product. I do like that you have on on your website, the kind of like chart of like what vanilla from where and in what like form, whether it's like bean or extract or powder to use. I thought that was super interesting. But so I guess I'm wondering then when I'm buying a bottle of, um, you know, Nelson Messi, like uh, vanilla extract, is that going to taste the same every year? For us, for the most part, yes. Yeah, for our products, for the most part, they will. There are natural variances from year to year, you know, just as with any agricultural product. Um, And that's another thing that people should understand is vanilla is a once a year harvest. Right. So it's not that they, you know, can harvest in April and then July and then October or whatever. It's typically harvested for the most part throughout the world one time a year. There's a few places that they get a smaller secondary harvest, but for the most part, it's one time a year. So there will be natural variations from one year to year. Um, but because of our process and, and how we produce and how specific we are and the grade of vanilla bean that we buy, we don't get the variations that some other people might get. Yeah, it would be like relatively nuanced. Like yeah. if I was like lining up a bottle, you know, a, a line of bottles from like the last 20 years and tasting them side by side, I might be like, oh, interesting. But right, right. Probably not many yeah, people. Do I, that. I don't know that I could even <laughs> pick out, you know, from one year to the next uh-huh. that there was a real difference. A consumer, certainly for the most part, is not going to notice a difference from one year to another. So, um, the the kind of the vanilla buyers that you work with are they're the ones kind of aggregating from the small farms in Madagascar, or Mexico, or Tahiti, or Indonesia, and they're packing cured beans. Correct. So the the supply chain, the basically the way that it works is you have the growers. Um, they are doing their their vines, harvesting their vines. Um, over the last. 10 to 20 years, the growers have actually started to cure the vanilla beans themselves as well. Um, in the early days, that was a challenge because it wasn't something that they did, um, mm-hmm. but it helped to shorten the supply chain and to give them better control as well as a better price for what they're for what yeah. they're doing. Um, as they've developed it, it's become the quality's become much better, which is great, uh, and it's certainly something that we've appreciated. So the cures, uh, the the growers will handle most of the curing. Some of them will still um, kind of sell into a like a cooperative cure and then they will cure the vanilla beans um, and then they typically sell to either an exporter or directly to an importer and then that's who we end up buying from what is it 
Can you give us an example? I know there's different ways to cure vanilla beans, but maybe one or two. Sure. So in Madagascar, the way that they cure, what they start with is as they harvest the green beans, they basically, the start of the process is dipping it in boiling water. They basically blanch the vanilla beans, and that essentially kills the bean, stops any more photosynthesis, stops any more growing of the bean. Um, and then literally it's a sun uh, sun drying process. So they lay the, the green vanilla beans out in the sun during the day. They absorb heat to the point where they get super hot, even to the touch. They get rolled up in burlap uh, blankets for the most part. Um, they're brought inside during the night, and then overnight they kind of release moisture. That's you know it's basically called sweating. Mm-hmm. And then the next day they lay the beans out again. They absorb the heat put them in the next night. So they do that for literally almost three months, okay. um, consistently day after day after day, obviously depending on weather, it's got to be a sunny day for it to work. So when I'm like wondering why my vanilla beans are so pricey, I yes. should be thinking about this person exactly. who's hauling yep. them in every and out. Every day that's added to haul them in and out and, and <laughs> do that. And it's during that process that all those you know enzymes and, and flavor profiles are developed within the vanilla bean to make it, to give it the flavor of vanilla as we know it. Got it. Got it. So how do they come? Like, how are they arriving in Waukegan? (laughs) So we are typically getting them in boxes. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, they've come to us already sorted. Um, So we get the very specific type of bean that we want from each of the growing areas. Um, And we will typically get in deliveries almost on a weekly basis. Um, our, Our suppliers will hold the inventory for us so that we don't have to hold it. Um, so we get stuff in every week, and every week we're starting new batches and making sure that we're maintaining our inventory levels. So we'll get them in boxes. They come in bundled, typically, mm-hmm. um, particularly from Madagascar. So they will go through and kind of um, in-country, they will do some sorting and bundling of the vanilla beans, and then our suppliers will go through and, and pick out, as I said, the ones that meet our specification. Um, and uh, we go through an incoming inspection process, so we have a quality control manager who obviously runs that. Um, but there is also a Nielsen of the three Nielsens in the company. One of us, 95% of the time, is involved in that incoming inspection process mm-hmm. as well. Um, and all of our supply agreements are um, based on subjective kind of um, standards that we have. So you can chemically analyze a vanilla bean and it can meet all those chemical specifications. Mm-hmm. But for us, if it doesn't look right, smell right, feel right, we have the, the right, according to our supply agreements, to refuse those materials. Huh. Um, luckily, the suppliers that we work with. We've been dealing with them for decades. Some of them are family-owned businesses as well, so we have great relationships. They know what our standards are, so we don't really have those kinds of problems with our suppliers. But every once in a while, something falls through, and it doesn't matter if it's one bundle out of 5,000 pounds or whether it's 2,000 pounds. Our guys, as they find them, whether it's during an incoming inspection or during processing, they will set them aside uh, and will return those for replacement. They're like, this just isn't right. Yeah, exactly. It it doesn't meet our standard. It's not what we want. Um, And for us, there's really no exceptions. Now, you guys have, did I read this correctly, that you guys have been certified organic since 1996? Yeah, we were one of the first companies to offer a certified organic vanilla extract back in 1996. Um, So we were really happy with that. Obviously, the organic market has has boomed over the last 20 years, uh, and it's a really big part of our our business as well. So we offer organic products. uh, We offer certified fair trade as well. Um, We're gluten-free. We're GMO-free. I feel like the gluten-free thing is kind of actually hilarious (laughs) to me. I'm like, guys, it's vanilla yeah, like yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it is. There, it depends. And the gluten part comes from the alcohol that's mm. used to produce oh, it. Oh, right. So I it's not Vanilla beans are naturally gluten-free, but sure. it is the alcohol that's based. So historically, we always use corn alcohol. And we did this even before the gluten whole thing, you know, blew up. Um, we did it because corn alcohol was neutral and it doesn't, wasn't going to add any flavor to it as opposed to a wheat or a rye or whatever it may be that can change throughout the year. Um, and then obviously when GMO became such a bigger issue um, and recognizing that even if it, even if the alcohol, even though no GMO organisms can get through the distillation process, uh-huh. it doesn't mean that the crop wasn't genetically modified to begin with, right. as well as even if this crop over here on this side of the road isn't genetically modified, but this one on this side of the road is, all it takes is a bird to go from one side to the next, and you kind of you lose that you lose that ability. So we specifically uh, switched to a sugarcane alcohol, mm-hmm. which again was neutral, but also is naturally you know non-GMO. I got it. So, all right, um, I want to. Well, I guess we should probably take a short break to hear uh, a brief word from our sponsor. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about how the extract gets extracted um, and a touch a little bit on, um, you know, the sustainability of the industry as a whole and what we should be thinking about as vanilla consumers. So hang tight, folks. We are here in studio with Matt Nielsen of Nielsen Massey, the amazing vanilla company. You can find out more about them by visiting their website, www.nielsenmassey.com. Hang tight. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice, and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Firesider added whole, raw, certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Firesider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Firesider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com. The one and only Dave Arnold brings the noise to Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday on Cooking Issues. Coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick and Brooklyn. If the bomb was going to drop and you only had 15 minutes, which is like, I can, I can make a sandwich in 15 minutes. And you'd be eating a sandwich. I'd kiss my wife, make a sandwich. If you believe that it's all about to be over, why eat healthy? I'm not a freaking Neanderthal. I like a tempered ice cream sandwich. But it's the only way to get around it if you're a party master because you, you're going to wind up, like, your kitchen's going to fill with dishes. And is Some there... people have commercial dishwashers in their house. Who? I've seen them. Who? 
I've seen them. Who? <laughs> really rich people. <laughs> For more mile a minute knowledge from Dave and the crew, listen to Cooking Issues, available on Heritage Radio Network, iTunes, and Stitcher. All right. We are back talking the most widely used flavor in the world, vanilla. Um, and what I want to get into now is the, the way I think probably most of us are using vanilla in our homes on a regular basis, which is vanilla extract. So how do you... How do you make, how do you make extract? I guess sure. Well, vanilla extract. No is, family secrets here. Yeah, yeah. You I, know. I won't give Broad away strokes. the secrets. I won't, yeah, don't trust me. I won't do that. But uh, vanilla extract is by far the most commonly used, particularly in the United States. Throughout the rest of the world, not so much. Um, but in the United States, vanilla extract by far is the number one form. Um, and really, what happens is for our process. So I'll tell you, there's there's two generally speaking two ways to do it. Um, Actually, let me start with our competitors. So um, our competitors typically use heat and or pressure in their extraction process. Um, the benefit of doing that is you can produce vanilla much more quickly. I mean, so faster and more of it. Faster. Uh, <laughs> they can do it in, you know, they can extract a batch in two to three days. The problem with that is that the vanilla bean has over 250 different flavor compounds in it that make up the flavor of vanilla as we know it. And many of them are very sensitive to heat during that initial extraction process. So by utilizing heat, you end up actually burning off or volatizing those flavor compounds. So you don't get a, what we would say would be the true depth of flavor. We use what we call a cold extraction process. We do everything at room temperature. Temperature. It takes us three to five weeks to produce a single batch of vanilla. Three to five weeks versus? Versus two to three days. Okay. So our process is a much longer but also more gentle process, no heat. So we feel we are extracting the full depth of flavor out of our vanilla beans that we can get. Um, and that's one of the reasons the quality of the bean that we buy and then this extraction process is why we feel our products are the highest quality in the market and, and generally speaking, why they're recognized as the highest quality. Um, from a consumer standpoint, they're just going to notice that our vanilla gives them a much bigger impact in their, in their finished product. On the industrial side, selling to food manufacturers, they often find that they can use less of our vanilla than a competitor. So mm. even though we might be slightly more expensive than a competitor's, they can use 3 to 5% less of our vanilla just because the impact of the flavor is so much better. And it makes us uh, either competitive or sometimes more cost effective. Certainly, we're not going to tell consumers to use 3 to 5% less <laughs> of a teaspoon. That's just really hard to manage. Um, so our hope is they just recognize that they're getting that much better of a flavor, flavor. in the chocolate chip cookie or the cake that they're making or whatever it may be they're like they're getting you know winning friends influencing people yeah, yeah. um so the extra so basically are you you're taking like the whole cured bean and just like making like a juice and then mixing that with alcohol? <laughs> well, what we do is we take the whole vanilla beans and we um, grind them. So the vanilla beans themselves that we get are typically anywhere from five to eight inches in length. So we the first process is to grind them into smaller pieces, usually about half inch to one inch pieces. Mm -hmm. And they also get split lengthwise as well. So what we're doing is just like when you cook at home with a vanilla bean, they typically say split the vanilla bean lengthwise. Yeah. What you're doing is you're opening up surface area from both the inside and the outside of the bean so that when you put that vanilla bean in a custard base or whatever it may be, it's going to absorb flavor from the whole pod. We're essentially doing the same thing. So we're cutting it into smaller pieces, splitting it lengthwise, loading it into um, our, we have specially designed uh, tanks. We call them extractors. It's a technical term. Um, and uh, we load them into these <laughs> <Juice> tanks. <makers. laughs> yeah. And what it is, it's just a recirculation of water and alcohol through the vanilla beans. Okay. Um, and it's the alcohol that actually is the solvent that absorbs the flavor from the beans. Water is not a strong enough solvent on its own. 
Um, and it's also part of the FDA regulation for vanilla extract. In order to be labeled a pure vanilla extract, it has to contain a minimum of 35% alcohol. Hmm. So it's just a constant for us recirculation of water and alcohol through the vanilla beans. The alcohol is absorbing the flavor, um, and then obviously the water is helping to dilute that as well. What do you do with the pulp? Once it is done, it has no flavor left in it whatsoever, certainly using our process. Um, there's a couple things that we can do with it. We, um, we dry them regardless, and then we are allowed to dispose of them as compost material, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to special waste or something like that. Um, and then another thing we do is after we dry them, we also can um, sift out all the little seeds that are in the, in the beans, um, and we actually sell that as a separate ingredient then. So if you mm. think about a vanilla bean ice cream, I'm not sure if this is a secret I'm giving away, but um, <laughs> but uh, if you think about a vanilla bean ice cream, they are typically using vanilla extract to flavor and then adding the seeds as a separate ah, cosmetic appearance right. item as opposed to using a whole vanilla bean to produce that. So it just gives the idea of a you know of being a more natural vanilla bean ice cream. Now we only sell those seeds to customers who buy our vanilla extract because a we obviously need the production of vanilla extract to to make the seeds, right. but b we also recognize that it does. Give give that natural appearance um, in the only way that we know that they're truly using a real vanilla is if they're buying our vanilla. So if somebody calls us and says, hey, I'm using an artificial vanilla, but I want to buy 10,000 pounds of seeds from you, we'll say, no, sorry, we won't supply that to you because that is misleading to the consumers then. And I don't, there's a lot to talk about with regards to artificial, artificial vanilla or vanillin and that whole process, but I don't, I don't think we're we're going to have time to get into that today. We'll direct folks who are local to the New York metro area. Definitely um, head over to the Museum of Food and Drink. They have an amazing exhibit covering a lot of this aspect of the vanilla conversation. Um, I do know you guys recently came out with an alcohol-free extract. So how'd you get away with that if it's like a minimum of 35% alcohol? Sure. Well, it's not labeled an extract anymore. So okay. it's just labeled a pure vanilla. Got it. Uh, the key word there is extract. That's when it contains the 35% alcohol. Um, but we did develop a way of using glycerin as a solvent. Um, so it's a similar, it's essentially the same process as how we do our other vanillas. Again, room temperature, three to five weeks of process, but we're using water and glycerin. And glycerin is what's extracting the flavor then from the vanilla beans. And that allows it to be an alcohol-free product. So that's um, important, obviously, for anybody that's sensitive to alcohol in itself. Um, It opens up a whole export market for us in the Middle East, uh, which Uh is obviously sensitive to alcohol, and it's an area that we haven't really been able to sell into because of that. Um, And then it allows us also to provide a halal-certified product also. Can I sit down to, like, a, a glass of glycerin? I mean, what does that like? <laughs> Glycerin is, is, uh, has a natural sweetness to it. So, yeah, I mean, you can certainly consume it. Um, I don't know that you'd want to in, in a yeah. you know, full glass form, but, uh, but yeah. Huh. Interesting. Well, so, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you guys have been in the vanilla game for, you know, 109 oh, years. Yeah, I would say over 100 <laughs> years at this point. And, um, you know, in order for you to stay in business, um, the vanilla industry has to be doing well. The, the farmers, the distribution systems, um, health of the planet. I mean, how do you guys engage more broadly with the kind of global vanilla community? Like, what is your role in that space? Yeah, it, you know, for, for a company like ours, that A is a family business. So, you know, we feel that we have certainly a... a a stewardship to both our business as well as to the industry, um, being a third-generation family company, um, as well as you know, there's there's a need 
for our for again a business like ours that's so focused on vanilla it's the bulk of what we do it's probably 80 percent of our sales is vanilla versus some of the flavors that we offer um and so that's really important to us. We want to make sure that there is always a vanilla harvest worldwide, that this is, you know, continues to be sustainable. And it needs to be sustainable environmentally, and it needs to be sustainable economically as well. There's got to be a financial incentive, obviously, for the growers to continue to harvest vanilla beans because it is so labor-intensive. It's easy for them to switch to other harvests and other crops and um, be able to make the same amount of money or more money doing something else. So we're very, um, we're very attuned to that, and um, we do... Do, um, a lot of programs, so we offer a fair trade certified vanilla. Um, we introduced that um, about 2013, and that was in reaction to actually um, some depressed vanilla prices that we noticed worldwide. That prices had kind of gotten too low, and therefore weren't economically viable, principally for the growers. And that's when we decided that you know we really need to step up and do something. And that's when we brought out our our fair trade certified vanilla. And that fair trade certification allows um, essentially a fair price to the growers. And make sure that within the supply chain that it's um, that it is viable and that the growers are, are getting what they deserve for that for that product. That's really important to us. Um, we've gotten involved in country as well. Um, you know these these areas uh, for growing vanilla beans are not you know really economically strong areas. Typically not very politically strong areas as well. Madagascar is famous for political instability. Uh, I'm not sure that they even have a formal government right now. Um, it's been through a, a number a series of, of different uh, levels of political instability. Um, so because of that, we want to make sure that the growers are taken care of as well. So we've partnered with suppliers um, and have done things like helping to provide clean water by digging wells and building schools or whatever it may be to make sure that um, that the that we're giving back to the growers also and not just uh, you know using them as, as a labor force to give us a raw material. That's, that's not how we look at it whatsoever. Um, and then environmentally, we recognize that, um, you know, for the most part, naturally vanilla is grown using trees for support. Now, there's ways to get around that. Um, some areas have, you know, certainly cut down the trees and just used, you know, posts and trellises to grow vanilla vines. We don't see that as a, as a good method for a couple reasons. One, A, because you're taking out the trees. That's that's not a good thing, we don't think. Um, but B, also, um, when they do that, they have they have a tendency to crowd the vines too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually bad for the vines. And it allows, there's some natural diseases that can affect the vines. Um, there's one that's essentially a root rot disease that caused the, causes the roots to rot and it kills the vine. And we find that that happens when they are grown too close together. So for organizations that try and develop these, you know, more massive plots of land with all these posts and trellises, they try and obviously maximize that space. And that in without fail, usually within a couple years, root rot disease hits that and wipes out the whole thing. So for us, we prefer the historical method of using trees. That means that there's natural spacing already because trees, you know, Can't develop their that, natural yeah. spacing. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that helps protect the vines and it, and it helps make, you know, a better environment as well, particularly in places like Madagascar. I would say definitely, obviously, like a more dynamic ecosystem. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we are just about out of time. I want to touch on two more things before we wrap up here. Um, one, as cons- you know, as consumers, um, you know, obviously we can we can look for you know the, the Nielsen Massey name and logo to ensure the kind of value chain of vanilla. I'm wondering if you can talk like I definitely have heard in the news like 
things around like the danger danger with regards to vanilla, like a, a Mexican vanillas in particular, or things being like mislabeled or misused. And I want to know, you know, obviously we think a lot here at the Heritage Radio Network about the importance of, of sourcing and knowing your suppliers. Um, can you just touch on a little bit of like some of the things that like f- are happening out there that like we should be aware of and like why it's important, I guess, to know the source of your vanilla? Yeah, definitely. Um, what what happens is, and in the U.S. in particular, we take for granted that we have an FDA um, that highly regulates food production and in particular highly regulates actually vanilla production. We're one of the most regulated within the Code of Federal Regulations food products um, wow. that dictates the ingredients that we're allowed to use and the amount of the ingredients in order to be labeled as a pure vanilla. Um, Other places in the world don't do that. So in Mexico, which is where vanilla is native, um, they certainly produce vanilla down there. And it's not to say that there aren't good vanilla producers down there. There are good vanilla producers, but they don't have that same level of regulation that we're accustomed to. And as Americans, particularly when we go down for vacation and something like that, we don't think about that. So we just take for granted that what we're buying is good stuff. Um, The challenge is because they don't have those regulations, and they don't have what we call truth in labeling laws that um, they will produce uh, a few different forms. They'll either, they can produce literally an artificial vanilla, 100% artificial vanilla and add brown food coloring. And because they don't have truth in labeling, they'll label it as a pure vanilla. Clearly that's not. That doesn't meet U.S. standards. Um, The other thing that they're known for using is an ingredient called coumarin, uh, which has been outlawed by the FDA for over 50-some-odd years as a carcinogenic. Um, It's uh, basically a cousin of Coumadin, which is a blood thinner. Um, Hmm. And um, they will use that in their vanilla products to help kind of boost the vanilla uh, flavor to um, kind of, you know, just broaden it out and, uh, and it helps them take with a smaller you know a smaller batch size and extend it Um, and typically when you buy a product like that that contains coumarin if you smell it it almost has that kind of coconut oil suntan lotion kind of smell to it that's indicative of it containing coumarin now they know that they have the stigma for using this product so you can go to mexico and see a product labeled pure vanilla and it'll say on there that it's coumarin free because they know that that's a stigma that they have um, and we've been given samples of those kinds of things and we've tested it and it's still contained well a you can smell it and know but then we have even tested it and found that it still even contained coumarin even though it was labeled that way that it wasn't um, so you just have to realize that you know other places of the world don't have the same kind of regulations that we do in the u.s hmm. um, even europe is a little bit different i wouldn't be uh, you know i wouldn't be concerned about it about buying a European-made vanilla, um, but even their standard is a little different than than what we're accustomed to. I, you know, in our opinion, obviously we're Americans, but in our opinion, the U.S. standard is the most strict um, and allows the production of the highest quality product. Huh. I just, I, it's like one of those things I like was reading about looking, um, doing some prep for this. And I was like, man, it just never occurred to me to like buyer, buyer beware of the like, you know, <laughs> souvenir of vanilla. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing, another key thing for people to look for is after reading ingredients, which obviously everybody does nowadays and should do whenever they're buying food products. If you ever see the word vanillin, V-A-N-I-L-L-I-N, that is the ingredient that is artificial vanilla. That's the term for artificial vanilla. So if you ever buy a product of pure vanilla, whether it's in the U.S. or Mexico, and you see that it has vanillin as an ingredient, right there you know it's not a pure vanilla. <coughs> well, um, we are just about out of time. Last thing, I know that you 
do a little dabbling in the competitive barbecue <laughs> world. I'm wondering if uh, the vanilla makes it into uh, any of your preparations, well, or my, if you draw the guys, line. My guys <laughs> would kill me if I'd fully disclosed everything. But what I will tell you, on our website, um, certainly in our recipe section, we have recipes for barbecue sauces and for tomato sauces and things like that. And vanilla does actually work really well in those savory type of recipes. And what it does is it helps cut the acidity of the tomato, um, but also helps to naturally enhance the spice flavors that are that are in those kinds of recipes. So I can't say 100% whether I do or don't <laughs> use vanilla in in, uh, in my com- competition barbecue. Um, you can probably make a pretty good guess as to whether I do or not. Uh, uh, but in general, yeah, we have we certainly have recipes for it, um, and it works really well in those types of applications. Yeah, I haven't done any. I really haven't done any playing around with savory preparations with vanilla. That sounds like something to work on. Yeah, we have a lot of recipes on our website that are focused on savory, focused on drinks. Now, everybody thinks about vanilla in sweet goods and pastries and cookies and cakes and things like that, but there's a lot more ways to use vanilla um, than just on the sweet side, and uh, we have a tremendous amount of recipes around that. Yeah, I'll bet you do. You're like, put vanilla in everything. (laughs) Exactly. Whatever we can get people to use it in, we're happy to do so. Well, Matt, it has been such a pleasure. I've learned a ton, and I hope that we will get you back in the studio because I know that there's a bunch more we could talk about. Yeah, happy to, and I appreciate the time today. Thank you. So, folks, you can learn more uh, by visiting www.nielsenmassey.com. You can find them wherever fine foods are are sold, uh, whole vanillas, vanilla extracts, and a a line of other products. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give a shout-out to uh, Dave, my engineer today, and a big thank you to our sponsor, who always makes the show possible. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm Aaron underscore Fairbanks. You can follow us at Heritage Radio, Heritage underscore Radio. We are a member-supported nonprofit station, so if you believe in our work, definitely visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Click that beating heart and uh, become a contributor today. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.